Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, and then turn left, and you'll get to Jude. Jude is the second to the last book in the Bible. Very short, one whole chapter, um, and we are going, uh, working our way through it slowly. It's one of my favorite books, especially the verses we're going over today, uh, some of my favorite verses if you are just joining us, welcome. Um, we typically go through books of the Bible. Uh, as I said, we're in Jude, and it may surprise you or may know that this epistle, this letter, if you will, was authored nearly 2,000 years ago. And even though it was authored that long ago, uh, as you read it, Remember that it's A, timeless, and B, you will find it, I think, very timely for the church in today's world. In Jude's day, when he wrote it, false teachers were infiltrating the church, uh, and they were proclaiming a different Jesus, a different gospel, according to a different spirit. And that was present in the early church, um, and pretending, if you will, to teach God's word, false teachers came in and they began to leverage God's word for their own purposes, to basically justify uh, their pursuit of ungodly passions. And this, frankly, has continued for 2,000 years. Uh, there is nothing new uh, under the sun. The same problems existed in the early church that exist today. Um, today, there are actually upwards of 4,000 world religions with millions of gods. Uh, there are even more, if you will, um, than that in cults. Hundreds more, I think 5,000-something cults. That would be considered um, many who call themselves Christian, each with their own version of a Jesus. And there are even a few rather obscure spiritual sects who worship everything from comets to Jedi Knights, they say these days, that is actually an officially sanctioned religion in our country. And while that is kind of cool, it's utterly stupid at the same time. <laughs> Some of these false gospels are universally inclusive. Everyone's in. Some are bizarrely exclusive, drawing their lines in different ways and different practices and beliefs that are oftentimes quite strange. I would argue that all of them are incredibly destructive, especially those who claim to be Christian and are not, and are actually attacking the church from within. Now, last week we learned, uh, among other things, that we have some work to do before we can actually fight any falsehood in the church and in the world. We actually have to fight some of the falsehood in our own hearts. And what I tried to make the point was this, that only after we have first established Jesus as Lord in our own lives, Jesus as King, Jesus as Ruler, Jesus as Master, Jesus as the one calling the shots, only after we have preached ourselves the gospel of Jesus daily, not just one time, but reminding ourselves that we are loved, reminding ourselves that we are accepted, reminding ourselves that we are uh, being protected and kept by Jesus himself. And only after we respond to the wayward, the way that Jesus responds to us, 
And by that, I mean it's easy to blast someone with doctrine. It's easy to, to shoot people with verses and to feel uh, as if you're doing the Lord's work. It's much harder to show mercy and patience. It's much harder to speak the truth in love than just to shout the truth out. And so these are the ways that we like, okay, I want to make sure that I have fought the good fight in my own heart before I actually am even able to fulfill my calling to contend as Jude will call us to. But after we have done that, after we have waged that war, after we have won, if you will, that battle in our own hearts, the question then will never be, are we able and equipped to contend as much as it will be, are we willing? Are we willing to contend? Are we willing to, to stand and, and fight, if you will, for truth? See, the idea of a contending for truth or refuting falsehood, it may not appeal to everyone. For some of us, you go, I don't know if I have time or even desire to do that. There are many Christians who claim to believe in Jesus, but express very little interest in the importance of sound doctrine or its protection. They will say things like, I'm just not into theology. I'm just not a theology person. And while I understand that sentiment, and while I understand there are those who read really big books, or words that you probably have to look up in a dictionary that don't really sound enjoyable to read, that's not what I'm talking about when I say theology. Because whether you recognize it or not, everyone here and everyone in the world is a theologian. And everyone living has a theology. Maybe underdeveloped, but certainly a theology. And by that I mean everyone has thoughts about God. Everyone has convictions about how the world works. And those convictions about God are often revealed by how we live, even if they sometimes differ with what we say. The only question is whether your theology that you hold is biblical or unbiblical, because you have one. Maybe better said, whether or not you are made in God's image or he is made in yours. That's the question, because we all have a theology. So we have to care about theology. Now, Jude is going to argue that indifference towards sound doctrine is not really an option for the Christian. And you go, well, why is that? Well, let me give you a, just an example or a metaphor to maybe help you understand. It's helpful for me. So if you've ever bought a new home, I mean a new home. So the first home I bought was, um, geez, I don't know, 2000 and one, I don't remember. It was a brand new house, right? Nothing fantastic, but a new house. Everything was new. Everything worked. Everything was strong. Everything was clean. It was fantastic. I had no kids at the time, so it was even more clean. Um, and you can imagine after five what happens to a house. But having passed every inspection, this house was approved and therefore could be trusted as a place to provide shelter from storms, provide warmth on cold nights, provide rest, just a place to safely uh, relax. And having that kind of house and that home makes sure not just the family is safe, but it creates an environment of security uh, that is rich and can create great stories and you have celebrations. Like having a home is a special thing and it's especially special when it's new. 
Because you don't worry about anything. Everything is clean and fixed. But over time, that new house becomes an old house. Things wear out. When you first bought the house, right, it was like any blemish caught your eye. What's that little smudge? What's that scratch? You wouldn't even let dust perhaps settle. You knew that the yard was perfectly manicured because they had manicured it for you. Like, I want to make sure it looks just like that. But over the years, it looks a little less, perhaps. Things are a little scratched up, dented, broken. Repairs are needed. Things have worn down. Maybe even major renovations have to take place. And the truth is, you can ignore all that and do nothing. And many people do, right? The house just gets worse and worse. And it largely is because of indifference. Indifference towards the needs of the home. Because what was once diligent kind of give, gave way to indifference, and in time, that gives way to apathy, and at time, that gives way to atrophy, where things break. And what might have begun as kind of just superficial degeneration eventually becomes maybe foundational destruction, like things were really broken at a deep level. Well, materially, physically, earthly, like that can happen to a home. It can also happen to us spiritually. Now, consider that when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote a great deal about the church in that short letter. And the chief metaphor that Paul uses to describe the church in that letter is a building, right? He speaks about the household of God. He teaches that Christians are part of the household in the sense that being adopted into the family of God, which is another metaphor for the church, and we speak about that often. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ. We have all been adopted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we say church, we, we know we're not just talking about the building, the institution, the organization. We're talking about a people. We're talking about a family, a local family, a local community that knows and loves one another. But when Paul talks about the household of God, and particularly in Ephesians chapter 2, his emphasis is not so much on the family of the household as it is actually on the house of the household. It's just an interesting thing to note. He says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. So we're talking about the family, membership and brothers and sisters in the community. Then he goes on and he says, Built, built on the foundation." of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, if the foundation of a house or the foundation of a family or the foundation of a church is left unchecked, it will be at some point open to ruin given enough time. The house in that case is then in danger of failing. And if the house is in danger of falling down, the household is in danger of having something fall on top of them, of being hurt. So materially, we see that apathy towards sound structure, right, leads to atrophy and destruction. But spiritually speaking, apathy, which I would argue many of us are very guilty of, apathy towards sound doctrine, apathy through biblical truth, 
Apathy towards those things actually leads to idolatry and eventually death, spiritually and otherwise. And so this is why we must contend. It's not an option. Things are being assaulted. Things are vulnerable. And if the house begins to deteriorate, the household that it contains is in danger. So let's look at what Jude says in these first, well, these two verses that I think are very powerful. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's one of my favorite verses in the scriptures. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Jude is not writing as an authoritative schoolmaster, scolding his children for knowing you know, that you should know better. He's writing as a protective father to his kids. The last thing I want to do is preach as a pastor who's like, you better know your Bible. But I do want to compel you. I do want to charge you in the way Jude does to know your Bible and to contend for the faith that is once all delivered to the saints. So he addresses as those he loves. And he is not speaking, surprisingly, to a particular church. He doesn't write his epistle addressed to a particular person, as Paul often does. Rather, he has a special affection for the church. This letter will most likely be circulated amongst many churches. He is likely an itinerant pastor. He's probably visited many churches, and he will circulate this letter throughout. He loves the church with all its flaws and imperfections. Jude loves the brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there are many of us, and many who are not of us, who would say, I have no problem with Jesus, but I don't love the church. And there are probably lots of stories related to that. And if you read the New Testament, you realize that the church might have been a hard thing to love even back then. Like the New Testament, when we talk about the, the first assembly, right? The 12 disciples. These guys are a bunch of clowns, okay? They really are. And they're, they're not totally funny, but kind of funny and foolish at times, but also like just kind of dumb at times and clearly sinful at times. And what we see, though, is that these, these are the guys that Jesus chose to be the leaders of the church. That's a bit surprising to us. It should be. But if you read the Gospels, you'll see that during the three years of ministry that Jesus walked around the countryside, teaching and working miracles, these men stumbled their way alongside him, saying pretty foolish things and doing foolish things. But that fact is supposed to actually provide a lot of faith or comfort or confidence in what is written. It's interesting what C.S. Lewis wrote about Christianity. We don't think about this. He was an agnostic who became a Christian. He said that one of the reasons he believed in Christianity was the kind of religion you could have never guessed. He says it offered us just the kind of universe we'd always, if it had offered us just the kind of universe we'd always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, 
it's not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. Like, the way that the disciples and the stories and the, how they're recorded, like, I don't think you should be saying that out loud. Like, those are really bad things. But what you see is this group of guys that are, like, totally kind of normal. You know what I mean by normal? Like, normal, screwed up normal. But the thing I want to note is that they're very different than one another. They weren't all the same. I want you to think about this for a second. You had fishermen, okay? Blue-collar fishermen dudes. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and you have tax collectors like Matthew. Those are different worlds. You had uh, charismatics like Nathaniel. Why do I call him a charismatic? Well, he was the guy, right, where he walks to Jesus, and he's like, ah, oh, there comes someone who's no guile, right? And he's like, what? You must be the Lord, right? That was all it took for him. Like one little weird miracle statement experience thing and then you got thomas thomas like i don't care if you saw jesus unless i see his hands and i stick my fingers in the holes of his hands i don't believe get the intellectuals right the guys are like the mystics and the intellectuals together you've got um philip who's kind of pragmatic if you read kind of a pragmatic kind of guy and you got him along with simon the political activist if he's a zealot these guys are all different than one another. And you go, what brought these guys together? And this is the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? I mean, let's be honest. I love you all, but we wouldn't, many of us would not be friends if we were not in the same church. And that's not because we're enemies, it's because we're just so different. In this, just this body, it's very different passions, very different personalities, very different experiences in life, very just perspectives of things. Some of you still don't understand the value of Star Wars, and shame on you. I don't know what's wrong with you. Some of you don't like ribeye steak. Can't figure that out. All you eat is salad. Something going on there. But we're friends. Like, if you call, I would be there. And if I call, I believe you would be there. But what binds us together is what brought us together. What brought us together was not the fact that we were the same. It wasn't either that we liked the same things. It was that we were saved by the same Savior. And we were saved by the same grace from the same slavery to sin. This is where Jude's idea of like we had this common salvation, right, is really important. There was something that binded this group together that had nothing really to do with them personally. It had to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting as you read in Ephesians, the same letter where Paul talks a lot about the church. He says in chapter 4, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Right? Okay, this is, that's very individual. I need to walk as a Christian. I need to walk worthy of the calling which I've been called. And then notice what he starts to say as one of the first parts of that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. And then he starts drawing some lines. There's one body, one Spirit, one hope that belongs to that call, one Lord, and one faith. One faith that binds us together. And that is the responsibility of all Christians to protect that one faith. 
Because if that one faith begins to fail, the whole house begins to fall on us all. And so we not just have responsibility for our own, you know, faith, if you will, for our own theology, but for our theology so that we protect one another. And this is why Jude says, hearing what's going on in the church, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, it's, if you again read Paul's letters, which if you read the New Testament, it's hard to miss them. There's 13 of them, right? Half the New Testament. You'll find that Paul is often telling us, don't be quarrelsome. He's often telling us, avoid foolish controversies. Stay off Facebook. No, he didn't say that, but he probably should. He would today, because it's pretty much where we all have foolish controversies that go on. But he often is warning Christians to resist, you know, being drugged into unprofitable debates. Okay? Now, Jude here, though, seems to imply, by saying contend, that there is a time and a place to defend. There's a time and a place to take up arms, if you will, to draw lines. The late apologist and uh, first Bible answer man, Walter Martin, some of you don't know who Walter Martin is. He's sure a character. He's with the Lord now. But he said that controversy for the sake of controversy is sin. But controversy for the sake of truth is a divine command. When you read Contend for the Faith, what if you read that as a command? Like, this isn't really optional. He's saying it for protective purposes. He's saying it so that our joy will be full, but he's not saying it like, hey, you got time. If you think about it, he's calling us all to contend. Now, Jude calls all Christians, not just pastors, all Christians, not just professional apologists, all Christians, not just leaders, all Christians to contend for something particular. Now, some translations will say contend earnestly, and they add the word earnestly because of the word contend and the meaning that's in that actual word. Because when you're talking about contending, it's this idea of a painful struggle, something you have to work at, something you have to fight for, something you have to deny yourself for, uh, you know, for, something you have to stand for, something that you may even have to die for, if necessary. We're to work, even agonize, at preserving and protecting something. Describing his own efforts to do this, Paul, in his final letter, I like to call 2 Timothy his last lecture, he says at the very end of that letter, some of the last words he ever writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. He's kept something. Fought for something. Ran hard for something. Paul's not just describing his own personal mission. He's describing, I think, the mission of all Christians. And Jude says that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So I want to break that down and address them in reverse order because I'm weird. 
So let's start with delivered. Whatever it is we're supposed to contend for, we'll get there. This thing was something that was delivered to us. It was not discovered by us. What I mean is, we don't contend for something that was dug up or made up. We contend for something that was given by someone to someone. The faith that Jude is going to call us to contend for, that we have yet to describe, has its source outside any one person. Walter Martin may have said this, but it's been said that when you want to define a cult, one of the characteristics of a cult is it's polarized around the teachings of one person. Charles Taz Russell, Jehovah Witnesses, Joseph Smith, Mormons, Mary Baker Eddy, Christian scientists, the list goes on. Okay? This does not have its source, whatever Jude is talking about, around a particular person other than Jesus Christ, who is more than a man. Paul speaks of himself often as a steward, someone who's been entrusted with the mysteries of God. And while that message of those mysteries has been delivered from one person, speaking it to another person, speaking it to another person, it had its original source in divine revelation. It is from God. When we talk about setting Jesus Christ first and foremost as Lord of your life, that is speaking about not just Jesus, but everything that he has said through his word. When we are contending for the faith, we're not contending for the words of a man. We are contending for the very words of God. Even then, we're not contending for just words that are a collection of wisdom which there is wisdom in there. It's not just a history, which there is history. It's not just a code of ethics or, or moral stories. It's not just inspiring songs or good instruction. We are contending for the power of salvation for all who believe. Words that are living and active and have more power than any other words available in the world in history. We're contending for the very words of God. And knowing that, this is why Jude can say these words delivered by God himself through men were delivered once for all. Once for all. Now, there are many who believe that the truth of God has an expiration date. There are many cults who believe that the church of God went apostate at some point and lost the truth of God. There are many who believe that with changes in culture, the word of God changes. That we need to leave archaic things behind as we, quote unquote, progress. Jude says, that's not the case. That there's no need for new revelation. That it was delivered once for all. And why is that? Well, people say, well, that's an old book and we have a new world. Well, the truth is this. Man hasn't changed since the beginning. The problems, although they take on different shapes and sizes, are exactly the same as they always have been. And so the solution 
is exactly the same, and it was once for all delivered to the church. And while I do believe we need to take the truth and contextualize it to many different people in many different places, contextualizing isn't compromising. Contextualizing is ensuring that we're explaining it, words that are understood, but it's not compromising, it's not adding to it, it's not changing it. God speaks today by His Spirit through His Word. And we should have a red flag for anyone who says, well, an angel of heaven came and said, Paul said, if I or an angel of heaven comes to you, and gives you a different gospel, let him be accursed. God speaks without doubt by his spirit today through his word because it was once for all delivered. And when you mean for all, I mean for all people of all time. And what kind of people are we talking about? Well, God has spoken hope for all, regardless of race, regardless of geographic location, regardless of economic status, regardless of what you think your sexual identity is, regardless if you're a man, a woman, young, old, religious, irreligious, rich, poor, sick, healthy, educated, uneducated, weak, weary, whatever, it's for all, once for all, the same word, the same truth, unchanging from the unchanging God. And we must contend for that. And when someone says, well, culture's changed, God hasn't. So this thing that has been delivered once for all, Jude calls the faith. And that article, the, is really important because he didn't say contend for faith. Contend for faith sounds very different because it is very different. Contend for a deeper trust in Jesus. We should do that. But the article there means there is something objective. The faith. And he says, you need to defend and contend for the faith. And so it follows, this is just simple logic, if you can defend the faith, you ought to be able to define the faith. Otherwise, you don't know what you're defending. When Paul says, I've kept the faith, that means something. That's not just, I've been faithful. He had been faithful, but he also had been faithful to teach the faith to men who would teach the faith to other men who would teach the faith to other men. So what is the faith Paul is talking about? Well, I think it can be broadly <clears throat> excuse me, defined as the essential body of Christian belief. Now, I say essential because we know, or you should know, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree about what the Bible teaches in certain matters. So unity isn't necessarily uniformity. Yet, I will say there are Christians who can, we can disagree on certain, certain secondary matters. But there are primary matters that we will have to divide over if we disagree. The question is, what are primary and what are secondary? And sometimes, those secondary become primary by how someone has treated it. What do we mean? Well, let me take a secondary matter that I believe Christians can 
disagree on. They don't have to divide over. They can be brothers and sisters in Christ and can say, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. We just disagree with the Bible teaches here. How about end time stuff? Jesus is going to return when? I don't know. I have my opinions of how things are going to unfold. Perhaps you do as well. But if you're a Jehovah Witness, you've said Jesus already returned. About 15 different dates, right? And once you have said Jesus has already returned, that secondary matter has now become a primary matter because that's not true, right? But keeping in the realm of Jesus hasn't returned and it could work out a bunch of different ways, we can disagree on that. And there are many things that we can disagree on. But when we talk about the faith, the primary teachings, we're talking about what all Christians must believe if they are going to actually be called Christian. The faith includes the Christian doctrines that were given to the church through revelation to the prophets, to the apostles by Jesus. Now you'll have many come to your door and say, we are Christian. There's a difference between saying you're Christian and that you're historic Orthodox Christian. As in, we believe what the church has always believed and what the Bible teaches. Now, the faith that Paul talks about. I want to get a little more specific about what are these things? What's in the pale that you got to believe? That we got to contend for? That are actually being attacked all the time? What are these things? Well, you might think this is a strange place to go. 1 Corinthians 15, great passage. If you go, what is the gospel? Go to 1 Corinthians 15, but there's so much more in this. This is a fantastic chapter. And I'm going to read the first five verses, but you should read the whole chapter. Paul writing, he says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, the good news I preached to you, which you received, not just they heard it, they received it and believed it, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's an interesting statement right there. He said, there are some truths that you receive and have to believe and are saved unless you don't believe them. And if you don't believe them, what I preach, then you're not saved. So he already draws some lines. Then he keeps going, though, and he gets more specific. Same thing that Jude says, once for all delivered. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That phrase of first importance doesn't mean only important. There are many doctrines and secondary matters that are incredibly important to people in different places and different ways. Like That's fantastic. What we're talking about is what should be first important, what is most important to all Christians. And he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and he goes on and talks about who else he appeared to. And then later on in the passage he says, and this is about really the resurrection. And he says, if we don't believe in the resurrection, our faith is meaningless, and so he goes on and on. Well, let's just see right here what we have in here, representing the faith that I'm talking about. Because there are lots of practices and traditions that Paul taught the churches to employ and obey, but the truth revealed in this passage has some very foundational things, okay? One thing, as you read this passage, you'll see a word is repeated. 
and that is Scripture. One of the first things, if not the first thing, that is in the faith is the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Because that's where we learn everything else. The authority of Scripture, the authority, the Word of God. That is being attacked all the time by scholars and so-called scholars. Whether the Word is actually the word that was recorded, whether the word is actually divine in any way. So the very first thing is that we believe in the Bible, that it is the words breathed out by God. If you do not believe in the authority of Scripture, it is hard for you to be a Christian. Because this is the word that tells you what a Christian is. But it's more than that. That Christ died for our sins. One of the number one thing that's being dismissed by the world today and even the Christian world? Sin. The doctrine of sin. Sin is just kind of a behavioral thing. Sin is just kind of a you know, sickness thing. We just need the right antidote. No. Sin is rebellion and brokenness of the heart where we fall well short of God's glory and we are condemned to death for that. Sin. Sin is the problem, not just the right way of thinking. Sin is the problem, not just the right way of feeling. Sin is the problem, not just the right way of doing. Sin. So like you said, it's like he died for our sins. He didn't just die. He didn't just get crucified as some example of humility to be a martyr. He died for sin. He didn't just die for sin. He died for our sin. My sin. And the fact that Jesus died. There are cults that say Jesus didn't really die. Well, if he didn't really die, guess what? There's been no sacrifice for my sin. Because I believe part of the faith is that there was an atonement. That there was a substitute in my place. Well, who is the substitute? He is God in human flesh. Why is that important? Mormons reject that. Jehovah's Witnesses reject that. Countless number of cults reject that. Why is that so important? You should have an answer to that, but I'll tell you the answer. If Jesus isn't God, which he is, his blood, maybe if he's sinless, which we'll talk about in a second, maybe cover one sin, but it certainly ain't going to cover your second sin, which is also worthy of death. And it's certainly not going to cover your second, third, fourth sin, the sins of the world that he died for, unless that blood has the weight of eternity. And if he's not God, how is he going to represent God in this reconciliation between man and God? Okay, so maybe he's just God. No, no, he has to be man too. Well, why is that important? Well, if he's not man, A, he can't represent you, me, or anybody else. He can't really be the last Adam because Adam represented us in the sin and the fall of man. He can't represent us in living, you know, for me. And he also has to live a sinless life. Why does he have to live a sinless life? Because I need righteousness. Even if I get sacrifice, even if I get atonement, he has to have a sinless life because I need righteousness imputed to me because it's going to take like that long for me to sin again after I've received forgiveness. Theology matters. And if you change one little thing, guess what? You're worshiping a demon Jesus or a false gospel that doesn't have the power to 
to save. Resurrection of Jesus, is that even important? Absolutely. That's like God's receipt. Receive, payment in full. Jesus is who he said he was. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how is he going to raise me? Like, all these things matter. Jesus returned. The literal hell and heaven that we are going to be in the presence of God or away from it, all these things matter. And these are the very things being attacked, twisted ever so slightly by some obvious cults and some not-so-obvious ones in the church. And if the house starts to fail, the household will be hurt because they'll be preaching something that doesn't save They'll be preaching something that sounds like Jesus, but it's not Jesus of the Bible. Now, that's not a comprehensive list, right, of everything Christians believe. Authority of Scripture, deity of Christ, the doctrine of sin, the humanity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, crucifixion. Like those, those aren't everything, but I do believe that's a core of what all Christians must believe. Those are doctrinal non-negotiables. They're foundationable and not debatable. Now, I think for many of us, it's tempting to go, well, these things, they seem like they matter a little too much to you, right? Like, I'm just not a Bible person like that. I just, um, look, as long as I love Jesus and love people, I'm good, right? And here's my question for you. Who's Jesus? You say you love him. That was the question that he asked his own disciples. That's the question that whenever I talk to anyone who is part of a Christian cult, I say, you know what? The most important question you have to answer in life is who is Jesus? And if you get that one wrong, every other question doesn't matter. So if you say, oh, I love Jesus, it doesn't matter. Who? Do you love Jesus, the Mike, Michael the Archangel? Do you love Jesus, the brother of Lucifer? Do you love Jesus, the great spiritual avatar? What, who? Well, I, I, Jesus of the Bible. Oh, Jesus of the Bible. Okay, so how do you know who he is? Well, I read in the Bible. Well, if you believe what they say about Jesus in the Bible, do you believe the other parts that don't talk about Jesus, maybe point to Jesus, but also are from the same Bible? Or even love. Well, as long as I love, what's love? How do you define that? Because in our culture, you know, Love has become God. Love is God. In the Bible, it says, God is love. Very different. So you go, well, does this really matter? Yes. Words matter. Definitions matter. Because the faith matters. And the faith begins to fail. The house begins to fall. It falls on people. Now, Jude tells us why it's so important. That word for is really important. So it's contend earnestly with the faith. Once for all, deliver to the saints. Read that like because. Why should we contend? Because certain people have crept in unnoticed, crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Like they were seen coming. Ungodly people who do what? Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this important? Why does theology matter? Why is doctrine our concern? Well, Jude is a lot nicer, it seems, than Paul. Jude just says, certain people, 
Paul names names. Paul's like, yeah, watch out for Jethro. He's a false teacher. Kick him out of your church, right? And I do think many Christian pastors have made a practice of doing that, and sometimes in very bad ways, and have gotten probably criticized rightly, and then some in good ways, and have gotten criticized wrongly. There's a time and a place to name people who are false teachers, many of whom are well-known, quote-unquote, Christian pastors, who should be called out for preaching a false gospel and leading people astray. Next week, when the sermon titled Contend for Judgment, stay tuned, right? You'll see. But there's a time and a place for that. But here, Jude's pretty nice. He's like, certain people saying, and this is a letter to all the church, he's like, this happens everywhere. Certain people are coming in, and they are teaching falsely. Well, what are they teaching? Well, apparently, it says they're distorting, distorting the gospel by teaching that Jesus' death on the cross gave him license to sin. So, do you see this? They perverted the grace of our God, the gospel of Jesus, into sensuality. So, Jude is correcting belief and behavior. What we believe affects and influence and even dictates at times what we do. See, the perversion of the gospel here is not just twisting the gospel. It's actually a perversion of the doctrine of sin. It's a perversion of the doctrine of God's holiness. It's a perversion of the atonement. You realize on the cross, that's where the love of God and the holiness of God came together. That's where God says, I love sinners. And he says, I hate sin. And what happens is we want to take one or the other. Like if you're into self-indulgence, and you just kind of want to do what you want, you're like, you know, God loves me. The grace of Jesus covers everything, and I can do what I want. I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about it. They have rejected the holiness of God, the call to holiness, the fact that grace that saves, grace moves. And there's people that forget God's love, and they're like, God is holy. Look how angry and ticked off he was, right? They're like, I got to earn God's love. I got to make sure I'm good. Like, you're forgetting God's grace. But they go together. The gospel gets perverted like that all the time, but it's actually rejecting a doctrine that kind of contextualizes the cross altogether. So there's a connection between belief and behavior, between theology and what we do. Paul says this in his letter to Timothy. He says, the law is good when one uses it lawfully. And he says, The fact that the law, it wasn't made for a righteous person. It was made for the lawless and rebellious. And he starts to name a bunch of ungodly behaviors. He talks about ungodly and sinners and unholy and profane, those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. And what do he say? And whatever else is what? Contrary to sound teaching. Some of your translations would say sound doctrine. So he says these behaviors are connected to and contrary with doctrine, good doctrine. No one to suggest that good doctrine always leads to good behavior, but bad doctrine certainly always leads to bad behavior. Okay? Now, doctrine and Jesus go together is the big takeaway. If you love one, you have to love the other. If you contend for one, then you are going to contend for the other. Now, it's been said 
by a well-known teacher, I've come to learn that theology matters. It matters not because we want to impress people, but because we want to know about God. Because what we know about God shapes the way we think and live. Theology matters because if we get it wrong, then our whole life will be wrong. Now, that's an incredibly powerful and frightening statement. So let me tell you why it's powerful. It's right. This is what Jude says, what Paul says. Theology shapes how we think. Theology shapes our perspective, and therefore theology directs and governs what we do. Here's the frightening part. That was written by none other than Joshua Harris. Now, if you know who Joshua Harris is, he is a well-known former pastor, author, teacher, Christian leader, who recently completely rejected Christianity. And you go, uh, how do you have that so right? And yet now seem to have things so wrong. First lesson is, be careful. Be sober-minded. The enemy prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone who's apathetic towards all kinds of things, including truth. But the truth is, I don't know Joshua Harris's story. I mean, I know what I read. I don't know what's going on in his life and in his heart. I don't know what brought him to the place he was or the place he is today. But the truth is, he has rejected the faith for something different. He even talks about a faith, but not the faith anymore. He talks about being spiritual, but not long, no longer being biblical. Perhaps he never believed. Perhaps he is now simply, as many do, allowing his desires to govern his doctrine. Allowing his desires to govern his doctrine. And what you see is the aftermath of that. If you read anything about him, at some point in his life, for whatever reasons, he stopped contending for the faith. And now, in the most starkest and painful of terms, his house has fallen, and it's falling on his household, on his family, on his marriage. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I'm not a theology guy because I'm just a theology guy. I'm a theology guy because I know the weakness of my flesh. And I know I need the word of God to save me and keep saving me from things like this. Now I'll close with this. At the end of the book of Joshua, which you're maybe familiar with, the book of Joshua is the story of General Joshua after the faithful generation, or I should say unfaithful generation, died in the wilderness. He took their kids in as older people, and he conquered the promised land, and then he vanquished all God's enemies and distributed the land, and then he comes to the end of Joshua, and he gives them a speech, and his final speech is recording and reminding them everything that God has done. And he ends with this. He says, now therefore, after seeing all this miraculous victory, Fear the Lord and serve him sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, famously, you probably know this part. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'd argue it's easy for all of us to echo what Joshua says without much thought. I bet some of you have this on your wall at home. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I pray that's true. But instead of making declarations about the intentions for our house, perhaps we might all survey the foundation on which our house is built. Apathy toward the faith leads to idolatry. And Jesus warned us in Matthew 7 that we must be very careful because you can build houses on all kinds of things. Those who build their house on the faith, the rock of his revealed word, will endure any storm. But those who build their house on anything else, and there are lots of faiths to choose from, Jesus himself says, great will be its fall. It's never too late to start contending for the truth that saves, the only truth that saves, the one truth that saves. It is never too late to repent and to believe. And when we say repent, we are calling people to turn from their sin, but also to turn from independence. To turn from autonomy, to turn from faith in any number of things and trust in Jesus and his word. Trust that you are dying in your sin. Trust that the foundation at its core is corrupted and anything you build upon it will at some point fall given a big enough storm. You are to trust that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in your place for your sins. Trust that anyone who confesses their sin, anyone who admits their lostness, anyone who accepts that I am broken beyond repair will be saved through the blood of Jesus. Trust that in Christ you have been accepted fully and freed, adopted into his family, cleansed of all your sin, your shame, your guilt, and trust that in his resurrection, he doesn't just make you a better version of yourself. He makes something brand new. And trust that he's coming again. Even as more, quote, Christians fall away, trust that he is keeping those who are his. He's returning for those who are his. And contend for all of this truth because it is the power to save you, the power to save your family, the power and hope for this world. And guess what? This world needs hope. Everyone in this world needs hope everywhere. That's why you should contend. Amen. Let's pray.